Have you ever heard the phrase, if something seems too good to be true, it probably is? If something seems too good to be true, it probably is. Some things in life seem too good to be true. And I wonder as we start in on Mark chapter 10, as we just continue working our way through the Gospel of Mark, the disciples were thinking that something sounded too good to be true. What I mean is, Jesus is in the area around the Jordan River. He is no longer in the north, northern part of Israel around the Sea of Galilee where he grew up and where he did most of his ministry. He's now down um, in the area around the Jordan River and he's on his way to Jerusalem ultimately to die. This is approaching the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. And if you'll know one thing about Jesus' earthly ministry is that it's, he's been embraced by the people who are left behind. He's been embraced by the poor. He's been embraced by the open sinners, the people who know that they're not right with God, that they, they're outside the kingdom of heaven. They're not in a good place with God. They love Jesus. They flock to him. Who else flocked to Jesus? The sick. Those who had physical diseases and ailments. Jesus, out of his mercy and his love, was healing them. There were crowds following Jesus. But do you know who were not following Jesus as a general rule? Rich people, important people, powerful people, and can I say this, religious people. You know, in virtually every age, the people who most stand opposed to the gospel of Christ are religious people. If you look across human history, uh, the history of the church, the last 2,000 years, do you know who has been the greatest persecutors of biblical Christianity? of gospel Christianity, religious people, including those who profess the name of Christ or uh, another religion. Those were the people that didn't love Jesus, that didn't follow him. And now here, out of the blue, what do we see? If you have your Bible, would you have it open to Mark chapter 10, whether that's on your phone or your tablet or your physical hard copy? Let's look at this important text together. Verse 17 says, And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now why do you say this is, seems too good to be true? Well, this guy seems like straight out of central casting for a role as Jesus' disciple. This guy seems too good to be true. We're not talking about one of these fishermen, one of these people who are kind of the left-behind ones in society. Jesus, you might hit the big time here. You've got a millionaire that wants to join up with you. You've got a ruler, we learn about him from another gospel account. He was a prominent religious person in the local synagogue in his community. This was the star, Jesus, that you can build a church around that you can build an entire movement around. I mean, let's, just, let's just put this guy in our human terms. This is like LeBron James coming to your church and sitting down and saying, can I join? This is like Taylor Swift walking in the doors and saying, hey, what do I, what do I need to do to get in to heaven? 
this is the person that can make a difference in Jesus' ministry. And that's why Jesus' response should be so utterly shocking to us. Was Jesus a seeker-friendly kind of guy? Well, in one sense, absolutely. He said, if you come to me, I will never throw you out. Oh, he was seeker-friendly. If anyone came to him with a humble heart willing to embrace him, Jesus says, I'll never turn my back on you. You will be mine forever. And yet, in another sense, in the way we mean seeker-friendly today, he was the furthest thing from it. We're going to see in his responses to this rich, eager, sincere young man coming and kneeling humbly before him, what do I need to do to get eternal life? It's going to seem like Jesus is stiff-arming him. And sure enough, at the end of the story, this rich, sincere, seeking young man walks away sad. And Jesus turns to his disciples and uses that opportunity to issue some of the most striking, surprising, shocking words in our entire Bible. What's going on here? Last week, we talked on the theme, children and the kingdom. Jesus says, whosoever will will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, like an infant, like a toddler. If you don't receive my kingdom like a toddler, like a little baby, you will not enter. You cannot get in. Now this week, we're going to speak on a subject I'm going to title, Riches and the Kingdom. Riches and the Kingdom. Because the message that Jesus is driving home to his disciples and the message he's driving home to us is this. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Are you willing to receive those words of Jesus today in the most prosperous society that humanity has ever known? Are you willing to receive those words in a culture today in which we are incomparably rich, even by global standards? Are we ready to receive what Jesus means when he says, how hardly shall they that have riches enter in to the kingdom of God? Riches and the kingdom. We're going to look at three very surprising things, to, at least to me, when I was looking at this passage. First of all, we're going to see an interaction, an interaction that from, from, my, from my eyes looks extremely startling. What do we see about this interaction between Jesus and this rich man? Notice what is surprising, first of all, is this man's approach, the way this man comes to Jesus. What's surprising about it is just what we've said. He is everything that Jesus' disciples to date have not really been. He's wealthy. He's successful. He's prestigious. And he is religious. We're going to see he is a very religious man. Do you know what every single person in his community would have said about him? They would have said, that's a good man right there. That's a good man. He's one of the best of us. You say, how do you know that? Well, Luke describes him as a ruler. A ruler. What does that mean? I don't think it means that he was in politics. It means that he was one of the leaders of the local synagogue. He was a leader in the local church, if you will. And you know what it is. I don't see it as much up here up north, but sometimes when I'm reviewing the 
the biography or the web page for someone who's down south, do you know what they love to put on their bio? A deacon at so-and-so church in the community. He is on the board of elders of the local Presbyterian church. Why does someone put that on their resume? Because if, if you're respected in the church, you must be the good kind of guy. You must be that respectable yeah, the, the, the upstanding moral citizen. We all know this. That was this guy. He was one of the leaders. And friends, he was young, we learn. We learn that he was a young man. So for a young man to hold a position that was normally held by older men who had that kind of standing in the community as a kind of patriarch, a pillar of the local community, a young man had already reached this level. This was a good guy by every single worldly social community standard but notice what he does he comes running to Jesus this is shocking because people of status in Jesus's day did not run it was embarrassing servants ran children ran rich people rulers leaders community pillars embarrassing they wouldn't have done that this man came running. Not only that, notice what else he did. He came running and he kneeled. He got down on his knees in front of Jesus. He was humbling himself. He was really honestly seeking something from Jesus. This is not the normal approach of a rich religious person toward Jesus. But what's also surprising is what Jesus, how Jesus responds. Look at what this man says to him. Good master. Good teacher, that's the idea. Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, why callest thou me good? Why are you calling me good? Now, we may not really totally understand exactly what Jesus is saying here at first. But can you feel the kind of confrontation? It's not like Jesus says to him, hey, welcome, buddy. Let's talk. Let's grab coffee and talk a little bit more about how we can get you into this kingdom of mine, right? The first thing out of Jesus' mouth is, hey, wait a second, you called me good teacher. Why, why'd you do that? He immediately pushes him back on his heels. We'll get to why I think what Jesus is getting at when he said there is none good but one that is God. Here's the other surprising thing about what Jesus said. If someone came to you and said, what do I need to do that I might get to heaven, what would you say? What would have been your first response? Well, if you've been trained well, you would have said, well, no, it's not about what you can do. You have to believe. It's not about earning your way to heaven. You need to trust to get to heaven. You can't get there on your own. That's what I would have said for sure, not Jesus. What did Jesus say? You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't kill, don't steal, don't bear false witness, defraud not. In other words, don't cheat and honor your father and mother. It's like Jesus is playing on this guy's turf. He says, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, okay, well, have you done these things? That's surprising to me. What's also surprising to me is how this guy responds. And he answered and said to a master, teacher, all these have I observed from my youth. The idea is, from the time I was a boy, from the time, likely 13 years of age, I had my bar mitzvah, I became a man, 
all those. From that point in time, I did it. Is that surprising to you? Well, in one sense, this man was being completely honest. And in one sense, we're going to see he was completely being deceived. In one sense, he was being honest because he could legitimately say, I think, he could legitimately say, look, by the way that we interpret these commandments, I've, I've done everything I'm supposed to do. I'm a good boy. The world clearly thought he was a good boy. That's why they made him a ruler of the synagogue at a young age. I've done good. In fact, none other than the Apostle Paul, a man who knew what it was to try to keep the law sinlessly. Do you know what he said about himself in, in Philippians chapter 3? He said, when I was in that season of life, he said, when it came to the righteousness, which is by the law, I was what? Blameless. Blameless. In other words, the Apostle Paul says, when I was a young man, you couldn't look at one area of my life according to the law as we interpreted it and said, Paul, you're out of step there. No, I was good. And this man, I think, is just saying the same thing. I don't see any, pro I don't see any infractions that I've had on those commandments that you put in front of me. I have been the best of boys. Now notice what Jesus says. Are you surprised by this in verse 21? Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. Jesus didn't get mad at him. He didn't get irritated with him. He loved him. And notice what he said. One thing you lack. This guy had everything. He was rich, he was successful, he was prosperous, he was respected. But do you know he lacked one thing? What was he missing? Well, look at what Jesus says. Go your way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor. Give everything you have, all of your millions of dollars to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. Take up your cross, and follow me. See, what was he lacking? It almost sounds like he was lacking several things. You need to go sell everything you have. You need to give it to the poor. And then you need to come follow me. What is Jesus saying here? Well, look at what happens next. Is this surprising? Look at verse 22. And he was sad at that saying. The, the idea of the Greek literally is that his face had a cloud come over it. It was like a cloudy day. His face just fell. Oh, no, not that. And what happens? And he went away grieved. He went away sad. Why? Because he had great possessions, great property interests, great wealth. He said, not that. Now stop there. That is a surprising interaction. And the most surprising thing that we should see today is, why did Jesus say if he wanted to get into the kingdom, he had to give away all his money? That's not what he says did he say that to you before you became a Christian? Has, has anyone of, of us here given away every bit of our money, sold everything we have, given them to the poor, and followed Jesus in that way? No. So why did Jesus say it for this guy? Hey, you want to come after me, this promising candidate, this person that all my disciples would love to have connected to our group, someone so rich and popular and well-known? Why does Jesus say, give away everything that you have? And you left treasure in heaven and then come follow me. Well, we need to see secondly here, not just the interaction that's surprising, but secondly, this instruction 
that is also very surprising, at least to me. Notice how Jesus responds next. We see in verse 23, and Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples. In other words, Jesus is looking around the whole group and he's looking up, he's locking eyes with people. He's, he's very serious here. The man went away sad. Jesus is serious. And notice what he says. How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? How hardly. He, here's what he's saying in, in, in modern words. How hard it is for rich people to enter into the kingdom of God. How hard it is. Come again? Excuse me? Look what his disciples, how his disciples responded. And the disciples were what? Astonished at his words. Would you have been? How hard it is for rich people to get into the kingdom of heaven. His disciples are, are, are blown. Their minds are blown. No way, Jesus. What are you talking about? Now, why were they so surprised? Because in the Jewish day, in Jesus' day, wealth was connected with the blessing of God in their minds. If you were rich, God was smiling at you. A very popular idea then would be as if you're poor, what'd you do wrong, buddy? Why is God out to get you? Were you healthy? Well, you must have been doing right. You must have earned it in God's eyes. He's blessing you with health. Are you sick? Who sinned? Do you remember in John chapter 9 when Jesus and his disciples come across a man who was blind from his birth? And what's the question that his disciples have for him? Hey, Jesus, who sinned? Was it this guy or was it his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus corrects that nonsense theology. He says it wasn't this guy or his parents. It was so that God could be glorified in him. That's why he was born blind. And I just need to say this. Whatever you are experiencing in life today, whatever, whatever perceived handicap you are facing, whatever disability, whatever challenge you're going through right now, that is not proof that there is a God up there who is frowning down on you and punishing you. Nor is there any more biblical support for the idea that, hey, are you really successful? Is everything going well right now? That must mean you and God are on great terms right now. No, it's not like that. And Jesus is just going to get rid of this idea, of this philosophy. His disciples can't believe that it would be hard for the rich to get into the kingdom of God because in their minds, they must already be in the kingdom of God. That's why he's blessing them so much. That's why they're so successful. You see, even this rich man has this idea. What do I need to do to get into the kingdom? What do I need to do to inherit it? What do I need to do to earn it? What do I need to do to work my way there into the favor of God? And his disciples are just, their minds are blown at this. Look at, again, what Jesus says in verse 24. But Jesus answereth again and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? Notice the change. How hard is it for them that are rich to enter into the kingdom of God? Now a slight change. How hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? Now look at verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. One of the most famous illustrations that Jesus ever made. What's the eye of a needle? If any of you have ever sewn anything, you know the size of that eye of the needle that the thread needs to go through in order for you to sew. 
Now, Jesus is intentionally being dramatic here. His disciples would have thought this was actually kind of funny. Like if I, if I were bringing kids together and I were telling this to a group of kids, I'd hold up a needle and, and, and there would be a little, that little eye in it. And I would say, hey, kids, here's a camel. You know, the big humps and everything. And now, kids, how could you get the camel through the eye of the needle? And the kids would laugh at me and say, that's impossible. And I would say, yep, you got it. You got it. It's impossible. You see, maybe you've heard sermons or you've heard other things that have been trying to figure out, well, Jesus must have been talking about the, the needle gate or the gate in, in Jerusalem where the camels had to crouch down to go through. Or Jesus was, maybe there was a scribal error here and he's saying, no, no. Jesus is using an illustration that kids can get. Did you notice what he said to start this sentence? He said, children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches? Kids, he's talking to adults. He's not talking to kids, but he's calling them children because even a child can get this understanding. It's impossible for a rich man to get into heaven. Do you hear what he's saying? It's impossible for a rich man to get into heaven. Now, is it any wonder, look at verse 26, and they were astonished out of measure. They were blown away. They could not get it. Look at what they said. Saying among themselves, who then can be saved? If a rich person can't be saved, then who can? If someone who's got the blessing of God can't be saved, then how can anyone else? Now look at what Jesus says. This is what he's driving at the whole time. And Jesus looking upon them saith, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. With God all things are possible. It's impossible for a man to get into the kingdom of heaven when he's rich. But with God, all things are possible. Now, let me step back for just a minute. We haven't answered the fundamental question yet. Why did Jesus say to this rich man, give away everything that you have and come follow me, and then you'll have it? We've said so many times here from this pulpit that if you want to understand the Bible, you have to understand it in context. And last week, we learned about children we learned about little infants, little toddlers that Jesus took into his arms and blessed and said, you allow these little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of God. And then he went on to say, in these powerful words, verse 15 of this chapter, verily, truly, I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. Unless you receive the kingdom of God like a little child, you can't get in. And now he says, rich people, do you want to get into the kingdom of God? It's impossible without God's help. With God, everything is possible. But outside of God, you can't get in. You see, what's he driving at here? Every single gospel that records the rich young ruler, that records the story, do you, want, do you, want, you want to know what comes immediately before it? The little children. Because Jesus in the little children is showing us we have to become childlike to enter into the kingdom of God. And then immediately after that, a rich young ruler comes and says, how do I get into the kingdom of God? And he says, like a little child. And the rich young ruler says, I can't do that. 
I can't do that. And Jesus says, well, I guess you can't get in then. In other words, what I'm saying here today is that the rich young ruler shows us what Jesus means when he says, unless you receive the kingdom of God like a little child, you can't get in. You say, in what ways? Well, let's just look at a few things about riches and about other things that make us not accept the kingdom of God like a little child. Here's one way. Riches deceive us about our moral need. Riches deceive us about our moral need for God. Do you remember what Jesus said to this rich young ruler? He said, the first thing out of his mouth was, why are you calling me good? There's only one good, and that's God. Here's one thing he was saying to this young man, I think. You're throwing around this term good. You're thinking that I'm good. You're thinking that you're good. We're just casually throwing this idea that we are morally good, upstanding people. And Jesus says, we've got to break it down right there. There's only one good, and it's God. It's not man. There's not one that's good. There's not one that's righteous in God's sight. There's no one good but him. Do you embrace that? Do you embrace that you and I are not good people? We're not good people. I just want to stop for a minute because that would cut against the grain of what we see in our society today. I saw a survey recently that 75% of Americans think they're good people. 75% of Americans think they're good people. And something even more striking, I think it was in a, a survey of, of British people, I think it was 98% of British people thought they were in the top half of most nice people, of nicest people. If you said, who's in the top 50% of the nicest people in the world? 98% of the people said, I'm in. I'm in that top half. We're nice. We're good. We're sincere. We try our best. You know, in the world that I live in, in my day, daily job as a lawyer, do you know I'm around those people? We're good. We're nice. C.S. Lewis put it wonderfully. He said, he talked about the a world of nice people content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God. And do you know what he said about them? Those people are desperately in need of salvation. They are nice people content in their niceness. And that is our world today. I'm nice, you're nice, I'm good, you're good. What do I need to do? And what is that? prosperity and riches so deceive us, so blur our eyes to our condition before God. Why? Because we've earned our riches. We've earned our money. We get the idea that, hey, I, de I deserve this. And then we start looking at God and saying, God, I deserve it too. Look, look at how nice I am. Look at how kind I am. Look at how good I am. And God says, we, we got to stop it right there. There is none good but one that is God. By the way, look at also what Jesus is saying about himself when he says that. Some people have looked at this verse and say, well, Jesus is admitting that he's not good, and therefore that he's not God. He's rejecting this man's compliment that he's good. No, he's doing nothing of the kind. If anything, do you know what he's saying is? He's saying this. Why are you calling me good? Do you know what that means? Are you willing to call me God? If you're calling me good and only God is good, are you willing to receive me as God? And we're going to find that this man wasn't willing to receive him as God. He wasn't willing to kneel before him morally. 
So riches deceive me about my need, my moral need. Riches deceive me about my eternal need. Do you remember something striking about this, this conversation between Jesus and this young man? Do you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, what about those commandments? He said, I've kept them all. Do you, did you notice there in that list of commandments? Just take a quick look at those list of commandments. Do you notice that all of the commandments that Jesus gives are about this man's relationship with other people? Do you see that? Don't commit adultery. Don't be with someone else's wife. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't be untruthful. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. They're all dealing with his relationship with other people. And this guy said, I've been blameless when it comes to other people. Do you know what Jesus, the commandments that he didn't include? His relationship with God. And do you know what happened there? This man's relationship was broken with God. Because where did Jesus go? How many of you have ever been to the doctor's office? And the doctor has an amazing idea, has an amazing ability to find what hurts on you and stick their finger right there. Ouch! Why'd you have to do that? Because I'm trying to make you better. The surgeon doesn't cut out of you tissue that's healthy. The surgeon cuts out of you tissue that's cancer, that's sick, that needs to be removed. And here Jesus says, where's the tumor? Where's the pain? Where's the issue? I need to make it better. And he goes right there. Do you know what he put his finger on? He put his finger on that this man had not kept all the commandments. That this man was not right in the sight of God. Because what commandment had this man violated when he said, I will not give up everything that I have and follow you. He, gave, he, he, was, he was violating the very first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Jesus said, what is the greatest commandment in the law? You will love me. You will love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this rich man, when Jesus put his finger on what he truly loved, what did he love? He loved his money. He loved the comfort that came from money. He loved what money could buy. When Jesus put his finger right there, this man said, ouch! And he was revealed to be the sinner that he was. And when Jesus says, it's that thing, it's that right there that's holding you back from embracing me as your Savior. It's that thing right there that is keeping you from entering the kingdom of God. Here, this man's pride was revealed. He said, nope, I'm not going to let you touch that. I'm not going to let you get there. I'm going away sad. And friends, this is where it gets really sobering and serious for me, and I just need to say it as clearly and as simply as I can. If you are here today and there is something that is holding you back from embracing Jesus Christ with both arms and both hands, you need to drop it. You can't hold on to your idolatry and receive Jesus. You cannot hold on to what is holding you back from coming to Jesus and embracing him as the Savior, as the one who will forgive you of your sins and give you eternal life. You cannot hold on to it. There are those who say, I would come to Jesus, but I will not give up my sexual liberty. Friends, you cannot hold on to that and embrace Jesus. You cannot hold on to your pursuit of money above all others 
and, and hold Jesus. You cannot hold on to your desire to be prestigious and important. You cannot hold on to your reputation and give up Jesus. You can't do it. And that's why Jesus, out of love, notice he loved him. This was not out of a desire to hurt him. It was not out of a desire to shame him. It was a desire to love him. He said, you're never going to enter into the kingdom as long as you're holding on to your money with both hands. You can't receive me when your hands are full. This man wouldn't do it. Friends, let me just pause for a moment again here and just ask you, what are you holding on to with both hands? What are you not willing to release in order to embrace Jesus fully for who he is. It could be money. It could be something else. But Jesus, the point he is driving at here is with man, it is impossible. You cannot do it on your own. Only with God is it possible. And today, this morning, if you are feeling the overwhelming conviction that there is something you need to drop, there is something you need to release in order to embrace Jesus, do it. God is giving you the grace to do it. He's giving you the power to do it. He's saying, trust me, believe in my son, and you will have the full entrance into the kingdom of God. You see, what did this man miss? What was the one thing that he was lacking? He had everything except one thing, Jesus. He did not have Jesus because what was most valuable to him was not Jesus and the salvation he offered. It was the stuff he had back at home. You know, friends, it is childlike people who are able to say to Jesus, Jesus, I have desperate need. I can't get there on my own. It is childlike people who say, Jesus, you are so precious to me, I will drop everything in my hands to come and embrace you by faith. It is childlike people who humble themselves before God and say, God, I choose you over anything else. It is childlike people who are able to say, I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather be his than have houses and lands. This is the truth for all those who say, give me Jesus, you can have all the rest. Just give me Jesus. You know, friends, with God, all things are possible. For those who are rich, for those who are poor, for those who have much or those who have little, Jesus is willing to present himself in a way to say, I am the greatest treasure you can possibly have in life. Come accept me fully. Embrace me by faith as your all-satisfying provider. There's one more thing that's surprising here. Not just an interaction, not just an instruction, but notice finally, an invitation. Do you see in verse 28, Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. I love Peter here. I don't know the look on his face when he's saying this. I don't know if this is pride or something else. I honestly, I hear in it a little bit of, of concern, a little bit of Jesus. Are we on the right side? Jesus, we've left all. We left our fishing boats. We left our fishing nets behind. We left our families behind. Jesus, we're coming to you. We have left all and followed you. What's for us? And look at what Jesus says, so encouraging. 
Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house, or brethren, sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake in the Gospels. He's not saying you're leaving this for any reason. He's saying you have turned away from all of these precious things in order for me and for my words. But he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time. A hundred times what he left behind. A hundred times what he left behind. In this time, right now, he's going to receive it. Houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, with hardship. And in the world to come, eternal life. But many that are first shall be last and the last first. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? A rich man has refused to leave everything behind in order to have Jesus, in order to follow him. He is the first in the world's eyes. He's last in God's eyes. The disciples have left everything, and they have followed him. And Jesus says, what do you get? You get a hundred times what you left behind today, right now, in this present age, and eternal life. Those people who are last in the world's eyes, who've left everything behind to follow Jesus, are first in God's eyes. You say, well, what does that mean? Let me put it this way. Jesus is communicating to us what really is valuable in life and what's not. What's really valuable in life? Do you remember what he told that rich young man? He said, take all of your many goods, many possessions, and sell them and give to the poor, and you will have what? Treasure in heaven. What did the rich young man say? I'd rather have treasure in earth than treasure in heaven. That's what he said. That's what he chose. I'd rather have treasure in earth than treasure in heaven. And now what is Jesus saying to his disciples? You've given up whatever treasure on earth you had. You've you've renounced it for my sake in the Gospels. Do you know what I'm giving you? Do you know what I'm assuring you of? You are receiving a hundred times of that treasure right now and forever. And the question for all of our lives right now today is do we believe him? Just simply put, friends, do you believe him? I want to just give you this illustration to see if this helps. Sometimes we talk about sacrifice in the Christian life. I sacrificed so much. These disciples could have said that. I sacrificed my job. I sacrificed my income. I sacrificed respectability. I ultimately sacrificed my life to come and pursue Jesus. It's a sacrifice. And do you know in a sense what Jesus is saying? It's not a sacrifice. Let me, let me put it to you this way. I want you to imagine that tomorrow you took $1,000. You had $1,000 sitting around. You had $1,000 and you invested it in Bitcoin. And the very next day, Bitcoin skyrocketed it, and it was worth $100,000. A hundred times. A hundred times what it was worth to you before. Would you have said, wow, that's, that $1,000 was a sacrifice? Would you have said that? No, you wouldn't. What would you have said it was? A good investment. A really good investment. And do you know in the same way, when you give yourself to Jesus and enter his kingdom, in a certain sense, you never make a sacrifice. You make a really, really good investment. Because Jesus said, it's a hundred times in this life and in the world to come, eternal life. 
want you to listen to the words of David Livingston. David Livingston was one of the pioneer missionaries to Africa. He was the first one to see Victoria Falls. He was a man who gave, devoted his life to spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's what he said. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? He said, away with the word in such of you. Away with that word sacrifice. He said, say rather, it is a privilege. Listen to what he said. All these, he said, all these things, difficulties that I've gone through, he said, all these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. And listen to these words. He said, I never made a sacrifice. I never made a sacrifice. As we close here this morning, I want to say simply to you, there is nothing that you will leave behind nothing. Your sexual liberty, your love for money, your reputation, your prestige, there is nothing that you will leave behind for Jesus and for the sake of the gospel that will be a sacrifice in the long run. If we believe Jesus' words to be true, and we do, then in that way, we will see that what Jesus was calling this rich young man to was not a sacrifice to give away everything he had. It was the best investment he ever could have made. And this morning, friends, whether you are outside of the kingdom and needing to accept it like a little child where Jesus is putting something on you right now and saying, it's right there that's holding you back, give it up. He's not calling you to make a sacrifice. And if you're in the kingdom of God and he's tapping you on the shoulder and saying, you're not really committed to the kingdom of God, are you? You're not all in even today, are you? There's something that's holding you back from your life with me, your relationship with me right now. Friends, drop it. It won't be a sacrifice. It'll be a really, really